This episode is brought to you by Bumble. Each person's dating journey is so unique. I'm w- there would be so many people that have gone through like long dry spells and then suddenly decide that they're ready to date and ready to throw themselves back in the game. I feel like that was me last year actually. I went from no dating for like a period of a year to going on three different Bumble dates in the space of 3 months and it really taught me a lot about myself and intimacy and what I wanted from a relationship and I learned so much about myself as well as other people. Yeah, I did the same thing. It was like 5 years. Yeah. <laughs> and now so we're not living our single girl lives because of these experiences on Bumble. And Bumble totally gets that, which is why they empower you to date on your terms, whatever that looks like. Download Bumble wherever you get your apps. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle, from the serious to the frivolous, all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to be talking about a whole lot of sport off the bat. The blind side, Trump again, Britney Spears and the government's new domestic violence reduction plan. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. First, should we go into our personal headlines? Yes. We're going to the story. Let's get, what is your personal headline of the week? Well, I'm just going to first acknowledge that my <laughs> voice sounds terrible. I was hoping it'd be like sexy raspy today, but I think it is still old man. But yes, I've been a little sick this week. I think it's sexy. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I said I when I came in, too. I was like, what's going on? But I like it. I was like, no, I'm just doing this on purpose. You're like drinking a lot of honey and having I, lots of lozenges. I'm just going to talk like this. That's oh, really God. erotic. <laughs> um, and what about you? Uh, I'm wearing your shirt. I had a meltdown like seven and a half minutes ago. And by that, I mean two minutes ago. So much that's happened this week. You've been in a corporate box (laughs) and you want to talk about... the shirt on my back. This was actually really sweet. It was really sweet. No, I've had a great week. It's been a busy week, but this morning I came in with full intentions to wear this green power blazer and then I saw it on the camera and I was like, that's disgraceful. I look like a black hole. Like I just... You did not. It was just not giving with the red background and Sarah's got this white tank and white overshirt and I and <laughs> multiple people offered me the shirts off their back this morning and that really is team energy for this podcast. So but now we're now both in white. Yeah. Like we should both be in white. Let's, let's start colour coordinating here on in but I just think it's a beautiful thing it's a really nice shirt. I'm probably going to go and buy one after this. You're so welcome. Thank you Sarah. My Matilda de Jerv girly. Oh my god. <laughs> Alright should we get into the stories this week? Let's begin. Spain has won the FIFA Women's World Cup, but while women's sport makes huge strides, the Spanish football president's kiss has sent the conversation backwards. Now, we have a lot to cover today in sport. This is, I feel like the headline isn't the headline because we have so much to cover. I know, we actually have like seven headlines in this because we're going to putting all the sport at the very top and that's what we wanted to do. But But the kiss has been, honestly, sport has dominated the news cycle this week. Like It was kind of almost hard to look at other stories because this is all people were asking about. It's the only thing that was in our own box. Yeah. So we're going to dedicate some serious time to going through it. I want to start by saying... The Albanese government has announced $200 million in funding for women and girls' sporting facilities, and they've also committed to ensuring more sport is broadcast on free-to-air television, specifically women's and para sports. So that's a huge announcement. Now That is, that is single-handedly going to bring <laughs> free-to-air TV back. I know. Free-to-air TV, relevant once more. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, but I mean, the Matildas game last Wednesday as well, we'll go back to the announcement, but the Matildas game last Wednesday reached an audience of 11.15 million people 
Channel 7 says it was the most watched TV program in Australia since the current television rating system started. So it did beat the Kathy Freeman yeah. in the end. Wow, that's huge. It's massive. And so, you know, obviously this means free-to-air TV, we need to have access to women's sports and para-sports and just beyond men's sport on free-to-air television. So I think that commitment's huge, but I also think that we want to see where that $200 million in funding is being allocated because it's not really clear yet. They sort of said that a lot of it will go to soccer, um, football, sorry, and but we don't actually know the direct split because they were sort of referencing the Women's Netball World Cup win. They referenced the Matildas, but it's unclear, and I think we would like to see some more information on how that's distributed. Do we know when that will start? Or is that... It's kind of all in the pipeline. I okay. think it was a bit like... It's positive PR, it's a positive announcement, but I think we're waiting for the detail. Yeah. I also think it would be worth bringing up, and to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'm sure you do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Wallaroos released a statement this week, right? Yes. The Wallaroos on Sunday afternoon, all of the Wallaroos play. So the Wallaroos is the National Women's Rugby Union team, Mm -hmm. the 15s team. So the Wallaroos players released a statement on Sunday afternoon highlighting the disparity in conditions between their team and the Wallabies, which is the men's team. Now, Now, I want to read some of the statement because I think it's really important. So part of the statement says, You told us flying anything beyond economy was too costly. Then you flew the Wallabies business class on a trip shorter than ours. You told us full-time contracts were in the pipeline, that there wasn't enough money to keep the men in the game, let alone us. Then you paid $5 million for an NRL player. What was that? Who was the NRL player? I believe it's Joseph Suwali who signed a contract that was valued at $5.35 million over three years. That was recent news from earlier this month. That is an insane amount yes. of money. So, I mean, there's clear disparity in conditions. There's clear inequality. Also, I think it's worth noting the Wallaroos are actually ranked fifth in the world. The Wallabies are ranked eighth in the world in their respective competitions. And from my personal perspective, looking at this announcement and looking at how this statement's unfolded, Australia actually has the 2029 Women's Rugby World Cup. Mm, so We're hosting it here. Yeah. So in six years, we're going to basically have a, the potential to ha- revisit what's happened this year with the Matildas. And for me, I'm kind of looking at this and going, isn't this the opportunity for Rugby Australia to meet them where they're at and to fund the sport and actually have an opportunity to, in six years take it out. We also know that the top teams for the Women's Rugby Union are teams that are paid to play full-time. So these players are on part-time contracts. Often they have to go and work a second job just to fund the lifestyle of the elite athlete. And they don't actually have the ability to commit to a full-time contract because Rugby Australia isn't offering it to them. So from my perspective, I'm thinking, why don't they spend the time now funding it so that in six years we have an opportunity at taking it out? Has... Rugby Australia come back on that at all? Yeah, look, it's a pretty poor response. The Rugby Australia responded to their statement on Monday saying it would continue to involve the Wallaroos playing group through the Rugby Union Players Association in all planning and developments regarding investment in women's rugby. They said they're taking steps forward for a fully professional future, but it was really just words. Like, from my perspective, there was no commitment, there was no announcement. It was just, we know we have a way to go, we're doing the work behind the scenes, but nothing tangible. Disappointing. Yeah, it is disappointing. It is disappointing because this is a moment and an opportunity for change. And I think that any industry executive who is not willing to put money into women's sport at this point shouldn't be trusted with a bank account. Like, and if they're not convinced now, I don't think they'll ever be convinced. No, like, and that's... Ex- what more could you need That's on the exactly back of this? it. And I think that the claim that they don't have the ability to fund is exactly what the Wallaroos are speaking to in this statement. You're putting your money where your mouth is for the men. Also, a lot of the Wallaroos I noticed, and we'll talk about this later on in, in the episode in our Q&A segment, a lot of the Wallaroos were talking about the fact that the WAGs 
I don't like the term, the partners of the Wallabies players were actually given better conditions because they're included in the budget for the Wallabies. So while Wallaroos partners often don't even get free tickets to their games, the Wallabies partners are offered accommodation, flights, meals and tickets to their games. So when you've got the partners of the men's team in better conditions and being treated overall better than the Wallaroos women's elite athletes, it says a lot. It says a lot. So we'll talk about that later. But But then on the flip side... We've seen in the AFL, that's promising news. Absolutely. So yesterday the AFL announced an equal prize money pool for both the men's and women's game, which almost doubles the amount of the pool for the women's game. So it's gone from something like $630,000 to $1.1 million, equaling the men's. But the differentiator here is that with the men's prize pool, it's split across the top four teams in the competition. The women's will be split across the top eight. Yeah, so that's got a bit of backlash, right? Yeah, and I've been reading a lot of the comment sections on this where people saying it's not equal because of the distribution being different different. So per player, it's a different amount. But my question to that, and obviously I'm not a player, I don't want to speak for players, but my immediate thought was the AFLW has just leveled up to be the full 18 teams, right? Mm. And my thought is, isn't it better for the game overall if more teams are seeing a share of that money? I think the bigger question is, is this what the AFLW players were asking for? I don't think it's a bad move. I think it's a positive move. But from my perspective from the AFL, it feels like a very reactionary announcement to sort of clear their name, get some good PR following the Matildas. And I wonder if that's actually what the AFLW players have been asking for when I know they're still negotiating their CBA. Mm. Yeah. So they're negotiating their agreement and they were actually trying to get better pay overall, better conditions so they didn't have to be working a second job. Is this what they want? Yeah. Or is, is this, this what they're campaigning for? a distraction for? over here? I, I would suggest it is. Um, I'm not, it's not a bad distraction. It's a positive story. But if it's not what they're asking for and it doesn't actually equalise the game or offer them the ability to train and work as an athlete full time, yeah. is that the outcome they want? And then it's tricky because then if you come out and be like, this isn't what we asked for, it's like, oh, but You're I just on. read something amazing in the news. Exactly. So it's like, what are you complaining and about? And then it kind of gives this appearance of women athletes being ungrateful when it's still not equal. And I think that's the point to be made here is that it's not a bad thing, but it's not the best thing. Interesting. Okay, mm. but we need to get to what the big story was. The big story is obviously Spain. Spain has won the FIFA Women's World Cup on Sunday night, defeating England 1-0. Australia came fourth overall after finishing 2-0 against Sweden. How was that to watch? Uh, it was really heartbreaking. In a way, I was... I was in the corporate box. Distracted by cheese. I was actually distracted by cheese. <laughs> yeah. I was um, having the time of my life and I just thought I was better than everyone for two hours. I was like, is this what it feels like to be part of the 1%? It was amazing being in a corporate box. Glass. I was outside the glass, but I was like watching the game. I thought it was just cheese platter. And then more courses started coming out. And I was like, <laughs> I've had too up much on salami. <laughs> you are not ready for the corporate box. I'm life. not. I was like having my red wine and then I had multiple meringues. I don't even like meringues. I was telling people about this on cheek. It was ridiculous. Anyway, it's, that's not the point. The point was it was a sad game. But I think that watching that game also, I thought... Sweden was the better team. It's like, you know, the game on Sunday night as well. Spain was the better team. The better team won. We're so proud of the Matildas. I just want to thank them. Yeah. And it's not really about, I think they're going to be really disappointed in themselves, but I think it's not really about that. The conversation has changed forever and they've made history. It's the best outcome we've ever had. And I think that's what we should be speaking to at the moment. Yeah. Also, did you see Nikki Webster was brought out on stage? (gasps) Nikki Webster! So apparently the team, the Matildas used to listen to Strawberry Kisses in the locker room before they take the pitch. 
Really? That was like their warm-up song? That was their warm-up song. It started with Steph Catley, I believe, and then the whole team got behind it. And so they were given the keys to the city of Brisbane on Sunday, I believe. I don't even know what the keys to the city actually entails. Is it free parking? It's not a master key. The city sounds like the most dramatic. Who gets the key? Like the mayor I know. I know. I know. So they brought out Nikki Webster on stage after Anastasia Palaszczuk said she was also building a statue of the Matildas outside Suncorp Stadium. I heard that. There's so much sports news. I'm so sorry. I haven't even got to Spain yet. I know, I know. Okay, back to Spain. Let's go back to Spain. So, the big story is, unfortunately, which has overshadowed Spain's win, is that the president of the Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, kissed Spanish forward Jenny Hermoso on the lips on stage during the official post-match ceremony at the World Cup in Sydney on Sunday night. It was broadcast live. Social media has rightfully responded with outrage to the act. Did you see it? Yeah. I saw it. Yeah. He was... Every single player, and also he was standing next to the Queen of Spain, like the royal family was on the stage, FIFA president was on stage. I've got other comments about him. We're going to stick to the story for now. Basically, he was picking up, hugging, kissing every player. But when it came to Hermoso, there was kisses on the cheek and then a kiss on the lips, which was broadcast live to the entire world, basically. On a live stream afterwards, Hermoso said she didn't like it. But then later, comments were given to the AFP by the Spanish Federation on her behalf. So I have a few questions about Mm. how this has unfolded. But basically then later it was, it was a totally spontaneous, mutual gesture because of the immense joy that winning a World Cup brings. Okay, bit of a spin. Bit of a spin. Also, he like grabs her face. He there is nothing gr- mutual about that. Exactly. She did not stand a chance. She wanted in or out of that. No, it was really, it was quite assertive. It yes. was quite, you know, it wasn't a consenting act. You no. know, you could clearly and see like, that she was grabbed. And he did quite literally hug and kiss absolutely everyone on stage. Everyone. But hers was on the lips. No, it was it was different. She also then said, the president and I have a great relationship. His behaviour with all of us has been outstanding and it was a natural gesture of affection and gratitude. But, as I said, comments given to AFP by the Spanish Federation. Rubiales has dismissed any suggestion that the act was inappropriate. Of course he would. Um, and he said it was a kiss between two friends celebrating something and that we're all silly and we should all just get over yeah, it, basically. Yeah, he was basically. like, it's idiots or Yes, he did like say that. idiots, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But literally moments ago, he's just apologised for breaking the very news. kiss. Breaking news. He's decided it wasn't right. I mean, he did, did claim it was not in bad faith, but he has apologised moments ago. Yeah, he would have had to, obviously. Obviously. Part of me was thinking, like, how would this be taken by, you know, the Spanish population? I was interested to see their If feedback. it was, like, a cultural... Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of wanted to know, like, am I missing something here? Is there a relationship that I don't know about? No. No, no, no. They all got behind basically the outrage and said this is inappropriate, it is an act of sexual violence mm. and it's not okay. There's also these added layers that I want to speak about with the Spanish team. I'm going to go beyond the word drama. It's pretty controversial and it's pretty concerning to me and it's kind of overshadowed the game as well on Sunday night between England and Spain because in late September of 2022, 15 members of Spain's senior women's squad sent a letter to the Federation via email to announce they would no longer play for the national team unless there were changes made to the coaching staff. So basically the identical letters made aware that they had concerns about the emotional state and health of the players due to the way they were being coached. They also raised concerns about the way they were 
disrespected by the top male soccer executives and denied the elite equipment and treatment that was given to the men's team. The women also said that the facilities the Federation provided for them were subpar and that their coach fostered an oppressive workplace environment, one in which the player's every move was monitored by his staff. What? Right. So this is really, like, there's so much context here that we don't know about. And it made me personally confused when I was watching the game on Sunday night who I should be going for because it gets worse because after the player's letter was released, the coach called the situation a world embarrassment and basically said that the solution was to only to have a team with players that were 100% committed to the project. Wait, so they've made a, a complaint and they and it was just like, well, you're either on board and you put up with that or you're out and you're against us. Basically, and so of the 15 players that submitted this letter via email to the Federation, 12 were removed from the team. But we're talking about some of the best players in the world, right? And this is late last year. So it's a year ago, not even. Now, I guess the thing that I'm coming back to now is it's remarkable that Spain got this far when so many of their top players were removed. Yeah. And went on strike and protested the conditions that they were being coached under, right? But at the same time, from my perspective, I go, is there a win affirming these practices. But also what I'm thinking is then if there's clearly a bit of hostility between the team players and the federation, a hug and a kiss between friends feels even more unlikely. Exactly. We don't know what the players that are currently on the team actually feel towards this. Mm. Like I don't want to make claims on their behalf, but it overshadows and adds a lot of context and layers to the kiss, Mm. which was obviously a form of sexual violence that should be spoken about through that lens. But from my perspective, I go... I want to support the women who play in this team, but does that validate this coach? And that's a really hard question. And I don't know enough about the story to make that determination. I don't think any of us do. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what else comes out about this kiss because even without knowing all of that, which I now just have heard, I looked at that and I thought, ooh, this is already loaded. Yeah, (laughs) and I think that especially notable is the way that it's gone from I was uncomfortable to this statement being released about how it was a mutual gesture of affection shows some level of control and manipulation behind the scenes. I would dare say. Looks like it. Yeah. The inspiration behind the movie The Blind Side, Michael Orr has filed a petition with the court alleging that the Tui family did not adopt him, but instead tricked him into a conservatorship. Conservatorship doesn't sound right when I say it. No, like that. you said it right. I actually thought Why it sounded really good. Why does that word sound so no, wrong coming out of my you, mouth? I think you did it right. I thought it sounded solid. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, if you don't know the movie The Blind Side, I'm surprised if you don't know it because mm. this movie was huge and it is was one of my favorite films of all time. I'm saying was probably still is. I don't know. Conflicting. It's set in 2004. It tells the story of how Michael Orr, and this is all based on a true story. A black boy who was homeless and from an incredibly rough background, he was taken in by Leanne and Sean Toohey, played in the movie by Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw. They're a very well-off couple. They gave the teenager a home. They made him part of their family, became his legal guardians, and then steered him towards becoming a very successful high school footballer who then went on to ultimately make the NFL. So very heartwarming feel-good story. The movie was a huge hit. It earned more than $300 million in theatre. It won Best Pictures at the Oscars and Sandra Bullock also took home Best Actress as well as Golden Globe and a SAG Award. What we're now learning, what it seems now, is that this seems to be crumbling now that Michael Orr has come out and claimed that he was never adopted. But at 18 years old, he was tricked into signing a document that made Leanne and Sean his conservators, which 
pretty much gives them legal authority to make business deals in his name. Michael didn't realise this until his lawyer picked up on it in February this year, apparently. So he's like 37 years old now. He did not know about this until this year. But the petition alleges that the Tuies used their powers as his conservators to make the deal that paid for them and their two children, as we know in the movie, Colin and SJ, millions of dollars in royalties from an Oscar-winning film, while apparently Michael received no compensation for the story that, to quote, would not have existed without him. The petition also alleges that a separate contract made in 2007 appears to give away to 20th Century Fox the life rights to his story without payment whatsoever. Michael reportedly doesn't remember signing this contract and no one explained its implications to him. Um, In the petition, Michael has also asked the court to end the Tui's conservatorship and to issue an injunction that stops them from using his name and likeness from now on. He's also seeking payment now through the profits the Tuies have earned by having them pay his share. It's a massive story. It's so sad. It is really sad. I mean, it overshadows the movie. It clouds everything. But I want to know... I actually don't know much about this story yet. Have the family responded? Yeah, so the Tuies have come back and said, well, their lawyer representing them has issued a response saying that Michael threatened the couple by saying he would plant a negative story about them in the press unless they paid him $15 million. So that's messy. Uh, the Tuies also claimed that they divided all the proceeds from the movie equally between their family, including Michael. Sean also gave a quote to the Daily Memphian saying, "'It's upsetting to think we would make money off our children, but we're going to love Michael at 37 just as we loved him at 16.'" Also worth noting, and I thought this was really interesting, And I don't know if you know, but you know, it was originally a book before it was a movie. Yeah, it was a book written by Michael Lewis, who also, fun fact, wrote Moneyball and The Big Short. This is, that's weird too, because Moneyball and The Big Short are also weirdly mathematical financial films. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And he had heard the story through Sean Toohey when he wrote the book, who was his childhood friend. Um, oh, so the lens obviously is like hero worshipping a bit. I, that's interesting. It's a bit white saviour complex It is interesting. Thing. It yeah. really is. Anyway, he's defended the Tuies and explained in an interview with the Washington Post, what I feel really sad about is I watched this whole thing up close. They showered him with resources and love. That he's suspicious of them is breathtaking. The state of mind one has to be in to do that, I feel sad for him. He also went on to add that he believes the Tui family would have only chosen conservatorship because the process was much quicker than a traditional adoption. Also, as we know from the movie, they were concerned about the NCAA investigating his choice to attend the University of Mississippi, where the Tuies were boosters. Yes, I remember this from the film. Yes. yes. So now, okay, I know there's been a lot of talk of conservatorships with Britney Spears and it's come up a lot in the media recently, but I just I want to know whether it's... Is it unusual? Is it surprising? Is it problematic for him to be put under a conservatorship? Like, what is it? I think a lot of people, and myself, are pretty confused about Michael being able to be under conservatorship at all. Like, to have one, you have to have a doctor say that you are mentally or physically disabled in whole or in part. So from an outside legal perspective, it's pretty unclear how Michael would have qualified. For that. It's really murky. But oh, okay, now this is where it gets interesting for me. Why is Sandra Bullock involved? Uh, I think this is ridiculous, just quietly. But yes, Sandra Bullock's name has been pretty dragged through the mud because people have been saying that she needs to return her Oscar and kind of implying that she's like guilty or involved in any of this somehow, which is sort of ridiculous because she has nothing to do with the real life story. 
I also think it's in particularly bad taste considering only last week it was revealed that her long-term partner had died um, after a private three-year battle with ALS. Oh, that's awful. So she's going through it. She's going through it. Leave her alone. She has nothing to do with its real story. Yeah. Also, the actor who played Michael Orr in the movie has, Quentin Aaron, has come out and defended Sandra, saying to make a statement like that doesn't make any sense and that we're reading this as of right now. Like, we're all learning this at the same time. I think that people want to find a scapegoat and it's really easy to find, and also it's easy to find a woman. Like, I think that that's a really interesting (laughs) element here that they're going after the person with the Oscar. It's like none of the other cast members are really being attacked at the same level. Yeah, I think what this story has done, though, and it's, complicated one and we're going to see this sort of play out over the next few weeks but it's going to bring that whole white savior complex movies into question a lot more absolutely and that's that's a good thing it's a good it's a good thing to bring under the microscope but i don't know how that looks either like what what is like the due diligence that people need to do but also in this situation as much as it's a really tragic outcome and it seems like there's a lot of factors at play that we'll never know about it's only unfolding now yeah and i think it sounds like it's gonna be a big he said she said scenario it's just a sad story because we all rooted for the fairy tale on that one absolutely This episode is brought to you by Bumble. Now, we may not be dating experts, but we have learned a thing or two in our time. I think we talk a lot about hot tips and tricks to get your Bumble profile better and get you better matches and a better conversation. I think one of the key ones that we always mention is a lot of guys I find have like just five group pictures of their whole profile. I don't know which one you are and you're wearing sunglasses and all of (laughs) Exactly. Make your first photo just you so that you stand out and we know who you are. Also, really think about your prompts because sometimes you look at a profile and be like, I want to reply to you, but you you've given me nothing to work with. So try and find something that's unique and makes sense to you to write. Also, I always am more likely to respond to someone who is engaging in more than a hi, how are you or what are you doing? Try and respond to a particular part of someone's profile when you're engaging with them. Yeah. But if I had to pick one piece of advice, it would be this. Remember that dating should be fun and should be exciting and should make you feel good. And that's what Bumble is all about. Bumble empowers you to date on your terms, whether that's meeting new people or a long-term relationship. Download Bumble wherever you get your apps. Donald Trump has been indicted for the fourth time in four months, with the state of Georgia charging the former president and 18 others with crimes related to election denial. Trump again! We're back! Every time I think we don't have to talk about him, he does something! He's back! So, for people who haven't been keeping up with the story, let's summarise it really quickly. We did cover this quite in depth in episode one, Mm -hmm. but if you don't have time to go back... Quick, quick rundown. Quick rundown. What is an indictment? An indictment is a formal accusation, not a conviction, of a serious crime. So when a person is indicted in a criminal court in the US, it means that the majority of a grand jury composed of residents chosen at random believed there was enough evidence to charge that person with a crime. If it sounds unfamiliar, it's because we don't have this system in Australia. Now that Trump's been indicted four times, let's go through the indictments. One indictment relates to the classified documents case in Florida. The second is the hush money case in New York related to Stormy Daniels, which includes 34 felony charges of falsifying business records third set of criminal charges are attempting to hold him accountable for his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Mm. Now he is being charged again in Georgia over election denial once more. So that's like when he was saying, go find me votes, right? Yes. So I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in episode one, and I said, basically, we're waiting on the charges to be handed down, but the report's finalised from the grand jury. 
this is the outcome. <laughs> that happened so quickly. It, we thought that was going to be over like a while. I thought so too, but no, it was quite quick. So these charges relate to the creation of false electoral documents, lying to election officials and soliciting participants to the scheme. Trump and 18 others, including high-profile lawyers Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell and John Eastman, and Trump's White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, are all being charged under anti-racketeering legislation. Now, this is interesting because it's usually safe for the mafia. Anti-racketeering <laughs> legislation is actually used to prosecute organised crime and gangs. This is organised crime. Yeah, it is. It mm. is, but it's like it's quite an interesting comparison to make, right? <laughs> so the indictment says Trump and the other defendants knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favour of Trump. So Trump and his co-defendants have been charged with 41 different offences, all face at least two charges. Trump faces 13 separate counts. Jesus. Yes. I was actually reading commentary from the University of Georgia's assistant professor of law who explained that the minimum prison sentence for this legislation is five years for these offences. So it's five years to 20 years for a lot of the anti-racketeering legislation, Mm. right? And if they were found guilty and convicted. So actually what the interesting element at play here is that what they're expecting is that the threat of this prison time will make people turn on Trump. So what you mean by that is like people are going to throw their support elsewhere because it's like kind of watching a sinking ship. No, no. I mean, his, the 18 other people who've been charged alongside Trump right. will turn on him in court. Right, sorry. You know, that's okay. I'm glad you said that because I realised too that that might have sounded like the population. No, 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 the Republicans love Trump still. That's (laughs) not changing. I was like, that would be pretty huge. No, no, no. (laughs) So the actual conversation happening now is this anticipation of people like Rudy Giuliani going, I don't want to go to prison for five years, so I'm going to give evidence against Trump and attempt to strike a deal that protects Mm. me and takes him down. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the interesting thing that we might see unfold. And that's not a take I had read elsewhere. So to read it from an assistant professor of law at the University of Georgia, they know their shit, they know this legislation. So it's quite interesting. I was also reading the Daily Oz's coverage of this last night just to get across all of the detail. And some of the interesting points that they made in their post was that they highlighted that sitting presidents are typically immune from being prosecuted on federal charges, but not state charges which means he can't escape these by being elected. Mm. So if he was elected as president, he could potentially get rid of all of his federal indictments if he was convicted, but not this. God, it's complicated. It is complicated, but I want to always point to what makes this different. And only a few hours ago, there was breaking news that Donald Trump says he will travel to Atlanta, Georgia on Thursday to be arrested following his indictment for the fourth time. Posted this lengthy, absurd social media post where he said... Can you believe it? I'll be going to Atlanta, Georgia on Thursday to be arrested in caps by a radical left district attorney, Fannie Willis. She campaigned and is continuing to campaign and raise money on this caps lock, witch hunt. This is in strict coordination with crooked Joe Biden's DOJ. It is all about, and once again, we're finalising with caps lock, election interference. Yes, it is about election interference. You interfered with, with the election. election. Potentially. I mean, not convicted. We don't know we're find, so but, mm. but when he surrenders, there will be a hard lockdown of the area surrounding the jail. Oh, my God. <laughs> it just gets more and more ridiculous. It does. I mean, he's denying any wrongdoing, but I'm surprised he's turning himself in. The surrender is quite an interesting element, and yeah. it's literally breaking a couple of hours ago. So, yeah, Keep it's, an eye it's on big it. news. Huge. 
Britney Spears and Sam Asghari have filed for divorce after just over a year of marriage and things are looking a little toxic. <laughs> this is Sorry. an interesting story. I, that was a good joke. Thanks. I want to acknowledge that. Thanks. When you were laughing, I was like, I didn't get it. And then I was like, oh. Wait, wait, and then did I, everyone get it? Then She's I heard. Song called toxic. I literally heard. Dun, 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 dun. And I was like, oh, that was funny, Sarah. Thanks. Okay, a little background on the couple first. So they first met on the set of her music video, Slumber Party, in October 2016. I actually don't remember that song. I don't know. And I'm quite a Britney Spears fan. Are you? Yeah, I went and saw her concert live. That was like one of the first concerts I ever saw when she did Circus and she came to Sydney. Circus was so good. So good. Um, but yeah, so... Sam is an Iranian-American fitness trainer, model, and actor, <laughs> for anyone who's interested. Um, they kept their romance pretty under wraps, though, for a while because Britney was still in her conservatorship. She's still in her conservatorship. They kept their romance under wraps because she had legally, she was sort of imprisoned. Yes. Fast forward to today. Initially, the news broke that Sam had been the one to file for divorce, um, citing irreconcilable differences. So we don't really know what happened between them. They're, like TMZ and stuff's reporting that there's like cheating rumours and whatever, but we they don't would. know. They would. They would report TMZ's that. TMZ's actually reported a whole lot on this. I was going to go through it, and then I was like, when someone other than TMZ reports this, then I'll repeat it. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it yet. But... What is worth noting, though, is that he will be seeking spousal support from Britney as well as attorney's fees for the divorce. His team's actually come out and already denied this as a factor, but that spousal support request has people starting to speculate if he will now challenge the prenuptial agreement. So I think that was the main criticism when people saw them get married. Everyone was a bit confused by them as a couple and everyone was like, Hope she has an airtight prenup. It's a bit sad because everyone kind of didn't think they'd go very far. So And it's it's vindicated or validated it's, those yeah, views. And yeah, and it's so sad. Everyone's like, ah, oh, see? Yeah. He's doing it for the money. Like And just, and it looks like that. It, it just does. does. It does. It's not great. Okay. Brittany then broke her silence on it. She posted one of her famous dancing videos mm. she's in like a little green it's not like a thong but like undies and yep. she absolutely spins around like 57 times and it's incredible that she doesn't get dizzy and then underneath it pretty much says that she's getting divorced it is a really again classic for britney sort of post but like very cryptic but she says i couldn't take the pain anymore honestly i've been playing it strong for way too long and my instagram may seem perfect but it's far from reality and i think we all know that and then this is what i thought was really interesting if I wasn't my dad's strong soldier, I would be sent away to places to get fixed by doctors. So I'm guessing likely a reference to That's her father's control really during the conservatorship. Con- That's really concerning to Pretty me. Pretty loaded that. comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she goes on to say, but that's when I needed family the most. You're supposed to be loved unconditionally, not under conditions. So I will be as strong as I can and do my best. And I'm actually doing pretty damn good. Anyways, have a good day and don't forget to smile. A roller coaster of a post. I really struggle with these conversations, and we were talking about this before the episode. I don't really want to give my opinion on this, but I struggle to engage with her social media and not be concerned for her health. Yeah. And I don't think that a conservatorship is the answer. No. And I don't think that necessarily I am the best judge of this, but I find it really concerning what she posts, Mm. and I find those sorts of statements, like, I I worry for her. I don't know what the best course of action is, but I don't know what to do about it, but I really find it a really complex complex and difficult space. The posts 
look and feel erratic. I think what's sad is that conservatorship did nothing to yeah. clearly help that no, in a way that was it, productive it, and it's clearly caused this in a lot additional of ways. Trauma. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Sam also broke his silence. He said, we will hold on to the love and respect we have for each other and I wish her the best always. Shit happens. Asking for privacy seems ridiculous so I will just ask for everyone including media to be kind and thoughtful. He also made a really weird post the other day being like, what disguise should I wear to like hide from the paparazzi now? Oh. And I was like, mate. I was actually just reading that because I don't follow these people on Instagram and I don't check this stuff. And I don't think that people are asking for it with media attention. That's not my point. But it's odd to then egg it on in that sense. Like to be like, am I wearing a balaclava today? Like that yeah. sort of a tone is just, weird to take. I think it'll just be interesting. Hopefully we hear, not hopefully, but I'm, we might end up finding out more about this. I know Brittany is coming out in October with a highly anticipated tell-all book. This always makes me think when this stuff happens right before a big release, mm. okay, is this going to be included in the book? I don't know. I'm someone who really believes in the fundamental, like, oh, you know, things happen and I don't like to believe that things are PR stunts. Mm. But I look at this and I think the timing's perfect. Who knows? I think from what we know about the book, it's expected to cover like her journey through Hollywood. It talks about, and you know, I'm quoting from here from what her statement was, but topics of freedom, fame, motherhood, survival, faith, and hope, and including her rise from child star to pop sensation, along with the exploration of what a 13-year court-ordered conservatorship was like behind closed doors. I think it'll be fascinating to read. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big small talk book club. (laughs) We might need it to (laughs) kick it off We're going to have to read it. Also beyond that, Page Six has reported that Britney is also working on a new album. Which... (laughs) (laughs) I would love a new Britney album. Watch this space. How exciting. Yeah, so... Keep an eye on Britney, as always. As as always. The Australian government has set a new target to reduce the number of women killed by their partners by 25% a year under a new 10-year plan. Can I jump in straight away? Go for it. I just want to say, I know that this is the wording that we're repeating that is the government's announcement, Mm -hmm. but this should not be framed like this. Yeah. It should not be the Australian government has set a new target to reduce the number of women killed by their partners. It should be to reduce the number of men killing their partners. Like, it's it's like, we're going to decrease murdered women. It's like, why don't we talk about and reframe the conversation to be about the problem here, which is violence against women. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, you know, some people are going to say that's just details, but I think it's important. I think the way that we talk about this and the way the media talks about this points to the exact nature of the problem, which is the onus is always on women. Women are always centred. The women who are the victims are the centre of the story when actually it should be the men perpetrating the violence against us. Yeah. That's my starting point. (laughs) It's a great starting point. Thank you. You know what? Back that. And also just to refresh, what is exactly this huge problem in Australia? Like it's an epidemic. And this year already, the number of women killed has reached 34 as of August 2023. And that's according to an article in the Women's Agenda. Also, I read at the ABC, one in four women have suffered intimate partner violence since the age of 15 while three in five Indigenous women have experienced physical or sexual violence perpetrated by a male intimate partner. Again, one in four women. That is so insane to again, me. It's, and again, it's, it's focusing on, and this is the thing, is that obviously the stat makes sense that it's how many women experience this, but that means how many men are perpetrating it. It comes back to you know sexual and domestic violence. The conversation is always coming back to everyone knows a victim, but no one knows a perpetrator. There's this silence. There's this cone of shame around it. And it's always focused on the women who are murdered, uh, assaulted, 
victims of this. I think we know it. We've heard these stats over and over and over again, but nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. (laughs) Which brings us back to the story. For context, though, there was actually a national plan introduced back in 2010, but it entirely failed and, in fact, stats got worse. However, we did get 1-800-RESPECT helpline out of it. So that was really the I mean, takeaway on that. And again, like 1-800-RESPECT is a really well-known number, but the thing I take away from this again is it's reactive. By the time we're calling 1-800-RESPECT, that means the, the, the violence has been perpetrated or the threat of violence is present. I think part of the issue here is that often the government announcements are highly reactive to women's deaths when, you know, we rise up against and say we want action, we want change. Alternatively, we're, we're changing community attitudes. We're changing generational cycles. Community attitudes and changing that will take decades, generations, mm. yeah. right? I know that it's important that women are supported to call hotlines, to have funding to flee emergency situations. Those are important reactive measures, and I'm not saying don't have them. I'm not saying that's negative. Those. Yes, But it seems to be there's these polar options, these options of we need to start with kindergartners or we need to do something when women have been murdered. I mean, I'll go back to what this new plan is because pretty much what's happened is they've promised two five-year action plans and the first of that was released this week. And within that, there was six targets. There was a 25% annual reduction in women killed by their partners, as we discussed, four targets to improve the cultural understanding and attitudes towards violence and gender equality measured by surveys, and a First Nation-specific target, which has already been set up as part of the Closing the Gap program. And then additional targets will be added in 2024 as well. See, what I find really significant and interesting in this sort of announcement is the dedicated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander action plan. Yeah, yeah. So I think that is really important and that's what's getting the most attention out of this because, as we know, Indigenous women are six times more likely to be victims of homicide due to domestic violence than non-Indigenous women. They are also 33 times more likely to be hospitalised and that's, they've said that in the plan. So the plan has promised to provide services for Indigenous people who are both victims and perpetrators of family and sexual violence, including children. And it will also establish an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men's advisory body. Okay. Which is, I really like the sound. Like that's... It's clear. It's a re- like, I feel like we're hearing lots of stats and claims, but mm-hmm. this actually feels like a plan. This actually feels like a tangible step guide. Exactly. The plan also highlights actions to improve police responses and the justice system to support victim survivors and to improve access to housing for women and children facing family violence, as well as, and I thought this was really interesting, supporting women to stay in their homes when they choose to. Interesting. And I think that's a really big part of it. A lot of people, there's a lot of judgment around that as well. And I think that's a much more complicated thing. And I think it's interesting that they're recognising that Again, the stigma is placed on people staying in dangerous situations, but there's not really recognition given to the difficulty and challenge and the obstacles Mm. for women fleeing. So many. Mm. Um, I also thought it was interesting that the plan also points out the role corporate Australia can play in recognising when customers are experiencing violence and that specific companies, they've gone, like they mentioned financial services, utility providers, social media companies, online dating apps, how they can prevent this as well through their products and how they can pick up on this. That's really important because that, and, and you know what? I will say that is really the key to changing attitudes now as well, Mm. is pointing to the companies that have a burden and a responsibility to change something. And by putting obligations, I mean, 
it's pointing out the role. I would like to see some tangible obligations and responsibilities mm. put on those companies. Yeah. Um, because their role, not only can they minimise harm, but they should be responsible for some of the harm caused. And if we did that, then their role would increase and they might take more significant steps to prevent it. 100%. And I also think what's really interesting about that is, again, it's speaking more preventative, picking up on clearly what is going to be online abuse, what is going to be financial abuse, which is going to be coercive control. It's recognising the patterns earlier on. But again, in saying that, until I actually see what they're instructing these companies and what is going to be discussed on the men's advisory board, like... The devil is in the details on this. Absolutely. And I think it's not going to be perfect. I know that so much of this is blue sky thinking and I think it's imperative, obviously, that this gets the attention, the funding, the commitment it needs and hopefully it's more successful than the previous plan. But until, like, I just think it's going to be difficult to comment on until we see the details of this plan. Absolutely. And I think Thelma Schwartz, who's the principal legal officer at Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service made a really good point um, in an ABC article about how we need to be looking at the details of this. And she said, like, from her experience, that many of her clients in Indigenous communities especially prefer face-to-face interactions and were unlikely to open up about abuse they've experienced at a police station, for example. Like, they don't feel culturally safe there. So it takes time to build that. And so if you're only making things and resources available over the telephone or on websites, then you're making the presumption that everyone has access to internet and has access to a phone line. And that's not necessarily going to be true in remote areas. So again, it's all good thinking, but the details of how they're actually going to roll this out where it's needed most is what's going to prove this is going to be useful or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. We had quite a few people in our inbox sending in questions and stories that we didn't even get to get to this week. But if you have any other questions or you have any feedback on the back of this episode, please send them to bigsmalltalk underscore pod on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. The first question we saw, and I know you're going to know a lot on this, Mm. was what do we think of the WAG content out of the rugby union? Yeah, so this is like linking back to one of our earlier stories today about the Wallaroos, the Wallabies, the disparity in resources. But the conversational point that I was really interested in was the WAGs, which WAG stands for wife and or girlfriend of player. The term itself, I just want to just like drill down into this a bit. The term WAG... I feel is problematic. I don't think WAG as an acronym is problematic. I think the way that the connotation and stereotype has been applied to it over decades, right, is pretty harmful. Mm. Like I think that when I think of a WAG, I think of like a socialite that has like this impossible standard of beauty. And I also think it's just harmful. You think Victoria Beckham. I do. Yeah. And I think the problem with WAG inherently is that it ties this person's identity to the fact that their partner can kick a ball. Yes. And that sucks. But I think that the thing to be spoken about is, with the rugby union in particular, the Wallaroos, the women's team, have come out and and criticised the Wallabies' partners, the WAGs, for having better funding and conditions than them when Mm. they're on tour playing as elite athletes. Obviously, that's problematic, but I think there's a lot to be said about the, not just like men's sport, but the way that the culture of men's sport has allowed this to happen, as in like... It's suddenly about, like, their family is public nature. Their wives and partners have, like, careers built on the fact that they are the partner of a player. Mm. How does that work? I'm not saying it's fundamentally wrong, but it's kind of interesting when someone's identity is tied so closely to their partner's career and they've built a personal brand on that. Agreed. 
I guess my question is, am I being really judgmental and it's actually tabloid media's fault and these partners didn't ask for this? Well, 100%. And also, if you're going to be offered, here's your plane ticket, you're not going to be like, oh, actually. Yeah. That's not actually on them. And I guess my take is, it's kind of on the Wallabies to speak out for the Wallaroos as well, Mm. because... I don't like the fact that this will come down to women attacking other women. Yeah. And I think that the Wallaroos should obviously receive the funding before the partners of Wallabies players. Mm. Like the people playing elite level sport in Australia for the Australian national women's team should be funded better. But I don't think that it means that, you know, the partners of players shouldn't have the funding. I wish everyone had the funding. But I want to see the men speak out and support the women and make this conversation healthy again. Mm. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. Again, please tap the bell, follow, (laughs) review, rate, all of the things. Shameless self promo. Don't care. Um, And please follow us on Big Small Talk underscore pod and send us anything you'd like. Thanks, guys. Bye.